The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking at Job chapter 1, reading starting at verse 6. Before that, we find a description of Job's great wealth and a brief description of his godliness and his prayers for his children. And we come to pick up the account, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. May God had his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. When loss and pain come into your life, how will you respond to the living God? 
When you face bereavement or betrayal, when your health fails or your mental abilities falter, when life turns out vastly different from all that you had hoped or dreamed, will you worship the sovereign and loving God or will you turn away from him in your heart? Here in the book of Job, we witness a man whose life falls apart in a single day. All of his wealth and possessions, gone. And then his ten children, dead. And in chapter 2, Job also loses his health. He is struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot, we're told, there to the crown of his head. His wife advises him, curse God and die. And as the book unfolds, we see further loss. Job completely loses his reputation and his community. His name becomes a byword and the subject of children's mocking songs in the marketplace. Job sits on an ash heap, scraping his sores, and even his three friends offer him little solace. They accuse him of hiding some great secret sin for which he is obviously being punished by God. How would you describe Job's sufferings? Massive, catastrophic, overwhelming, and yet the very first thing we find in chapter 1 is that Job's first response is the response of worship, humble, believing worship of the true and living God whom Job knew and before whom Job lived. I would like us to look at our text under three headings this morning. The first is a brief overview of chapter 1. In The Wizard of Oz, there's the scene that Dorothy and her companions are standing finally before the great and terrible Oz near the end, and they have fulfilled their quest. They have the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West in hand, but Toto, Dorothy's dog, pulls back a curtain at the side of the room, and the little band of heroes sees that it's a mere man at the controls. The great Oz is a great fake. I was always really disappointed at that point. I wanted the Wizard of Oz to be real. But it turns out that Dorothy manages to get home another way. Here in chapter 1 of Job, we see the curtain pulled back. And far from seeing a weak, mere man behind the controls, we see the holy and sovereign and wise and loving God. It's as if we are ushered in behind the curtain and given a glimpse of why things are happening the way they will unfold in the book. And what we find behind the curtain is far from being a disappointment to us, for what is revealed is the absolute sovereignty and goodness of God as He fulfills His purposes and His plans for Job. What do we see as we get this brief glimpse behind the curtain? We see Satan, or we could even say the Satan, because there's a definite article before the word. Most translations don't have it, and rightly so, but we could also translate it the accuser, the prosecutor, the enemy of God's people. His existence is one of the deepest 
enigmas of the story of Job. Apparently, Job was kept entirely in the dark about the existence of this great spiritual foe that we see at the beginning of the book. And nowhere in any of the dialogue that goes on and on in the book is there any idea or any discussion of personal supernatural evil. But the reader is aware of it. Satan, this created being with great power who is thoroughly evil, and we all know much more about who he is as God has revealed to us in the New Testament, but seeking to detract from God's glory. And we see it in the dialogue of verses 9 through 11. And so we also learn about God and his interaction with Satan. It's interesting that in verse 8, God begins the dialogue. He says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? In other words, God is saying, Job is a believer who walks with me, who fears me, who knows me. In no way is he saying he's a perfect man or a sinless man, but here is a righteous man who is walking with God through faith. And he points him out to Satan. We might ask ourselves, is God being foolish to do this in some way? No, God is absolutely good and sovereign, and he is working his purposes out. But in some ways, it's a startling dialogue for us. We might say it's like this. One person has used this analogy. It's like the owner of an expensive jewelry store leaving his shop and going out in the back alley and seeing someone who looks very suspicious there, probably a thief, and going up to him and saying, I want to tell you about the most expensive diamond necklace in my shop. Can I describe the worth of these jewels? It's just a great thing. We would say that's a big mistake. It's not a mistake with what God is doing. God points out Job. And then Satan goes on to challenge the Lord. Satan, this created being in no way on a par with God. And he says, does Job fear God for no reason? And he goes on to speak about the fact that it seems that God has put a hedge around Job and is not letting Satan attack him. And and the upshot is, Well, Lord, are you surprised that Job fears you? You've been so good to him. And he concludes in verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And God gives him reign to do that. It's all about the honor of God. God could have said to Satan, I don't need to prove anything to you or to any of the heavenly beings. I am God. But God chooses to get an open victory over Satan, that in Job's heart it will be seen that God is of supreme worth, even more than his possessions, even more than his family. Job worships God. In the late 1700s and in the early 1800s in early America, the practice of dueling was a serious social ill in America. In fact, evangelical pastors preach sermons on the evils of dueling. You probably haven't heard one of those in your lifetime. 
And probably the most famous duel in early American history was one that took place in 1804. In fact, when Lewis and Clark and their expedition returned to civilization, they were stunned to get the front page news stories that they had missed for two years in their wilderness experience. They learned that there had been this duel that Alexander Hamilton, one of the key founders of our nation, especially its finances, was killed by Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, grandson of Jonathan Edwards and son of the godly pastor Aaron Burr Sr. Aaron Burr wounded Alexander Hamilton in this duel, and Hamilton died of his wounds. Why did they do it? Well, it was a matter of honor. And if someone was insulted in some way, you needed to stand up for your honor, and somehow it often involved dueling. It created a national sensation. But here in Job, it's like there's this duel between God and Satan. Not that in any way Satan can vie with God. God is the creator, the infinite one, the eternal one. Satan is a mere creation of God. But God chooses to use Satan's evil and his challenge to his own purposes and ends in this duel, we might say. And the outcome in chapter 1 receives its climax when Job hears this awful news. Think of receiving the news that your ten children have been killed. And he arises and he shaves his head and he falls on his face. And the Scripture says that he worshiped. What a scene that must have been. Job did not curse God. Rather, he blessed God. And he will not curse God in chapter 2 either. He worships God, and there will be great struggles in the book, and Job will not come through without sin in some way, but he does not curse God, and so the superior worth of God is revealed. We see in Job 1 this duel, this conflict between God and Satan that God has under His providential control for the worthiness of His name. And we also see the great suffering of Job. And his suffering is going to get much, much worse. But here is Job. We see he is one of the greatest of all the peoples of the East, we're told. And he loses everything. The parent's worst nightmare. I don't want us to lightly skip over the depths of Job's loss and suffering even in these brief references that we read here, because this is characteristic of God's people throughout time. God's people are by no means immune from great suffering. I think of that scene in the early minutes of the movie Saving Private Ryan, which concerns World War II, and you get this scene near the beginning of this farmhouse in Kansas in the middle of an expanse of corn and wheat crops And then you have a view from the inside of this white farmhouse of a black car driving up front of the house and a military chaplain getting out and walking up to the screen door. And you see the mother collapse. It reminds me of Job. She was going to get news that three of her four sons, this is historically true, were killed. In combat, and of course the movie goes on to 
depict saving the fourth, Private Ryan. Job's loss is very great. Maybe some of you have collapsed in grief and you wonder how you're going to go on. Well, the very first thing that any and every believer can do is fall on our faces and worship our good and great God. Job 1 shows us the grace of God to Job, and it shows us the worthiness of our God. Secondly, we look this morning at a right theology of God and Satan. We've begun to talk about this. What do we learn about the biblical theology of God and Satan? Well, we see that Satan's aim is to destroy the glory of God, and in doing so, take away the believer's worship of God, the believer's joy in God, the believer's delight in God, because the essence of worship is joy and delight in God, saying, God, you are of supreme worth, and even though I may not feel happiness or joy at this moment, I count you as my supreme delight. That is what worship is all about, whether we feel worshipful or not. Satan uses both pleasure and pain in his temptations of the saints. We know that, in a sense, pleasure and success didn't work very well in Job's case. He had much. He had wealth. In pleasure, the temptation is to say, God is unnecessary. I don't need God. He's superfluous. I I don't need God. I have everything that I need. My bank accounts are full. I have a big house. My refrigerator is stocked full. Well, that's one avenue of temptation that we can fall into. But the other is at the other extreme, and that's the extreme of pain and loss. And in that case, the believer is tempted to say to himself, God doesn't care, or God is hostile, or God is powerless to help me in my pain, and maybe even to doubt that there is a God, at least the God that the Bible describes. The pastor John Piper says, Satan is after your delight in God. He will put anything else in the place of God. In other words, Satan is after our worship. And so we should be moved to ask, what is our treasure? But God's aim, as it's revealed in chapter 2, is to reveal his glory and his worth in his people's lives and in their hearts. And the great aim of creation and redemption we know from Scripture is the glory of God, that God's glory be revealed. We have the privilege of seeing behind the curtain here in Job's life, and we see that the heart of the issue is, will Job worship God or will Job curse God? Will Job trust and love and reverence and fear God in a right way? and continue to walk with his God, even though the way is so dark, and though his whole life is in ashes before him, or will he curse God and die? Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise, The End for Which God Created the Earth, a very profound and deep study of the Scriptures about why God created the earth. And the answer is essentially, he did it for his glory. In Romans chapter 11, Paul concludes his great exposition of the gospel, and 
and facing these deep questions about God's election. And he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of, and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And then in verse 36, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This triumphant doxology summarizing what God's purposes are behind all of this, the glory of His name. We can't plumb the depths of the riches and wisdom of God. We don't understand His judgments. We don't know the mind of the Lord, Paul says. We have not been God's counselor. Far from it. But His glory is revealed in creation and in redemption in all of history. You know, we're in the midst of a presidential election again. It seems very early to be in it, but we all know it, and we see the news cycle every week, and we're wondering what the 16 or so Republican candidates are saying, what's happening with Donald Trump now, and and will Hillary fall or rise in the polls? What about Vice President Biden? I hope you know that you and I do not understand the purposes of God in these things. They are too high for us. We might have some sense. We might think we know, but God is the one who is working His purposes out. His people are called to pray and to seek Him, and maybe one day we'll fully understand these things. God's glory is the goal, and we find here in chapter 1 that God is absolutely sovereign over Satan. God grants to Satan limited power to cause pain. We see it in chapter 1. We see it again in chapter 2 when God let Satan do even more and strike Job's body with ill health. It's clear that Satan can do nothing apart from God's permission. The analogy is often used of Satan is a lion, we might say, but he's on a leash, and God holds that leash, and he uh, either lets the leash out a little bit or reins it in according to his sovereign purposes. God is not sitting in heaven wringing his hands about what Satan is doing, as evil and dark as the world may seem. God hands Job over to Satan, but he has a line drawn. And when Satan uses that power, Job worships God. The root of Job's piety reaches back behind Satan to a sovereign God, and he says, God reigns. I heard a message in 1975 at a conference I attended that was along the lines of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel that you might hear, and the preacher made the point that Job was wrong in what he said at the end of chapter 1. I was very confused by that. I thought, but doesn't it say in all this Job did not sin? Um, But the point of the preacher was Job was wrong He was ascribing to God the work of Satan, and really, Job just didn't have enough faith. And the sermon went on to talk about how if you have enough faith, what happens to Job won't happen to you. I was confused by that. The Bible does not say that. No, the Bible tells us about the ultimate power and control of God over all of Satan's evil plans. Quickly, two New Testament examples of this. One is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn was, but listen to how he describes it in chapter 12, verse 7. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the the, the surpassing greatness of 
the revelations. In other words, Paul had been giving great revelations by God. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. There we find that Satan was involved in this thorn. And then it says, to harass me. The purpose Satan had for this thorn was an evil intention, to harass Paul. And to some extent, that came about. It was hard for Paul. But at the same time, the verse makes it clear that ultimately it was from God to keep me from becoming conceited. God's purpose in sending this thorn in the flesh through the intermediary uh, work of Satan was to prevent Paul from spiritual pride. There in one verse, we see it, both the action of Satan, but that action under the hand of God. And similarly, we could point to the greatest New Testament example, which is the cross of Christ, where we know that the cross of Christ was the most evil and heinous crime of all time. But at the same time, it was the purpose of God to bruise His Son. And we read in Acts 2.23 a description in this one verse. It shows both aspects. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's a phrase that describes the ultimate sovereignty of God. Jesus was delivered to the cross by the purposes of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's the second half of the verse. Lawless men disobeying the revealed will of God, but amazingly carrying out the secret sovereign will of God for His people's good that we we may be saved. What a great blessing it is to have a right theology of God and His sovereignty over Satan and all evil. Well, this brings us to our final point, which is application to our lives. I would like us to see three things. The first is, in the face of great loss, seek to worship God, even in deep grief. In the face of deep loss, seek to worship God. It's a calling to which we are all called. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. Maybe our lives are pretty good right now, and there isn't a lot that we need to grieve about, but it's good to remember this truth. Mike Mason, who wrote a book called The Gospel According to Job, went through a dark time in his life, and in fact, he says that he wrote the book in scraps in the middle of the night by his bed that he would wake up and write in the dark. He couldn't even see what he wrote as he was going through this agonizing time, and he's meditating throughout this time on the book of Job. It's a beautiful book about that, but he says this about worshiping God in loss. He says, before we consider the actual words of Job's worship, we need to pause and take careful note of the attitude of heart in which they were offered. Was Job in the midst of his grief and turmoil somehow at peace? Was he filled with a strange spiritual joy? No, not at all. He was as broken and cast down as a man can be. In other words, we're saying, yes, the Christian does not grieve as the world grieves without hope, but still, it's not as if we have this serene happiness that kind of lifts us us out of it. Granted, he apparently, Job, apparently summoned the presence of mind to shear off all his hair and then take a straight razor and drag it across his scalp. But if Job's hand was uncannily steady just now, surely it was not from being cool and collected, but rather from being in a state of shock. 
and he asks, Mike Mason asks, can true worship really transpire when the heart is broken and the mind shocked and dulled with horror? He goes on to talk about the cross. And he says, yes. Seek to worship God in loss and in pain even when your heart is broken. Seek to worship God even when you can barely focus your mind and think straight. And maybe you can't think straight. The amazing promise of Romans 8 about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Even when we do not know how to pray or what to pray, the Holy Spirit helps us with groans that words cannot express. And it says, He who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. What a beautiful picture of the the Christian. Maybe at times all we can say is, Oh Lord, help. We can't even articulate a prayer that goes beyond that. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that during his imprisonment and torture, there came a time that he could not even remember the words of the Lord's Prayer. And all he could say was, God, help me. That's how deep his struggle and his suffering were. And the Scriptures tell us God meets us there when we worship, when we seek Him, even with weak minds and bodies. Seek to worship God in your loss. But secondly, in the face of great loss, seek to find comfort in the absolute sovereignty of God and the unfailing love of God. Seek to find comfort in the sovereignty of God and the love of God. Some of you children might pray that prayer, God is great, God is good. What a great theology packed into those little words. God is great, He is sovereign, He is loving, He is good. Seek to find comfort in that. One of the problems that unfolds in in the book of Job is that probably Job's theology had been wrong up to this point about suffering, and certainly Job's friends had a wrong theology. They had the idea that if you suffer a lot, it must be because you did something very bad. You were a great sinner. And often that idea can be out there that if I'm suffering a lot, is God punishing me? Have I done something wrong? When really we need to be holding to the truth of God's goodness and His love for us in Christ and that He is sovereign over our lives. And we cannot understand His wisdom in why we might suffer more than somebody else, in what's happening in our lives. You and I, unlike Job, live in the clarity of the New Testament era where we have the example of the cross. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, not deserving anything, suffers more horribly than any person who has ever lived. That dispels the wrong theology of Job's friends. Jesus, the sinless one, dies for us. He bears our sins. And if you have not received the gospel, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to see this morning something of the beauty of the cross. Job in his life dimly reflects it. At the end of the book, he will offer an offering and pray for his friends at God's command. But Job just vaguely points ahead to the brightness of Jesus, the mighty one who suffered that we might have eternal life. Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. Teddy Roosevelt had a very dark day in his life. He was still in his 
20s, he was an assemblyman in Albany in New York State, and he would take the train from New York up to Albany, and he served diligently. He was a rising star in the political scene at that time, and one day in Albany, he got a telegram, good news, his wife had given birth to their first child, a daughter, and people patted him on the back, and he was glad to hear that, but not long after that, another telegram arrived come home fast. She's failing fast. Nobody knows what the telegram actually said. It doesn't exist anymore. Roosevelt, this young mid-20s man, takes the train home. It's a slow train, five hours down the Hudson Valley through dense fog. That evening arrives and again enters his house in the midst of a dark night and finds that not only is his wife, who has just given birth to their daughter, dying of Bright's disease, but his mother is dying in the house as well. And they would both be gone within the day, his mother at 3 a.m., his wife by 2 in the afternoon. Roosevelt shuttles back and forth to the rooms, saying his final words to each of them. And the grief was so intense that scholars tell us that Roosevelt did not say or write Alice's name, his wife's name, except for two brief written eulogies for the rest of his life. A dark day. He would go back to his politics, his assembly work. He would travel out west that year to ride and to hunt alone in the still pretty wild Dakota Territory. There, far from humanity, he sought consolation. He writes about his experience. We don't know what was in his heart, but there is no record as far as I know in any of his writings, that the Word of God about the sovereignty of God and the love of God, there's no evidence that that was a great consolation to him. Again, we don't know for sure. He was a churched man. But we must ask ourselves, what about you? What about me? In a dark day, can we find comfort? Can we find consolation in these great truths that Scripture reveals about the sovereignty and the love of God? Well, this brings me to my final point of application for us. In preparation for great loss, cultivate a right response today to ordinary joys and sorrows. You know, most of the days of our lives are pretty ordinary, aren't they? We might have a dark day. We might have a great day sometime. But those are few and far between, at least for most of us. Normally, life is lived in the mundane the ordinary happy things of life, the ordinary down things of life. Scripture tells us to prepare for the dark days by walking with God today, by worshiping God today in both the joys and the sorrows. If there are things that are a blessing to you, ask yourself, am I giving thanks from my heart for the good things that God gives me, or am I living largely an ungrateful, complacent life. And then think about the hard things in your life. Again, they may not be great big things. Am I crying out to my God? Am I worshiping God even when things do not go the way I would like them to go? What are the trials and tribulations? What are the things that are hard for me right now? Elizabeth Elliot, who went to glory earlier this year, writes about her one of her great 
heroes of the faith. She says, when I was 14, I learned of an Irish missionary named Amy Carmichael, whom I never met, whose beautiful writings captivated my imagination. And she goes on in one of her newsletters to talk about Amy Carmichael's life. She often spoke about her. And I think one of the things that struck Elizabeth Elliot and is good for us in terms of thinking about how we can worship God daily is that Amy Carmichael, who experienced such loss, who lived the last 25 years of her life largely in, a, in an upper room of her house of the missionary station in India because of a fall, she was not able to go out very much, and yet she lived with such joy in God as she wrote, as she worked hard in administering the work there. How was she able to suffer so greatly for all of those years? I think if you read some of her writings, you see it's from the attitude of contentment that she sought to cultivate in a daily basis. One of her poems says it this way, Thou hast not that, my child. In other words, you don't have what you want, but thou hast me. And am I not alone enough for thee? I know it all, know how thy heart was set upon this joy which is not given yet. And well I know how, though the wistful days, thou walkest in all the dear familiar ways, as unregarded as a breath of air, but there in love and longing, always there, speaking of God's presence in her life. I know it all, but from thy briar shall blow a rose for others. If it were not so, I would have told thee. Come then, say to me, my Lord, my love, I am content with thee. Build an attitude of worship in your daily life by seeking contentment in the God who is with us in Jesus Christ. And I hope you might even take that last verse of the hymn that we sang. I want to read it to us as we close. What God ordains is always good. This truth remains unshaken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, I shall not be forsaken. I fear no harm, for with his arm he shall embrace and shield me. So to my God I yield me. So to my God I yield me. May our attitude be, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our Father, we cannot respond with worship without your powerful help. How we need you, how we call upon you. Give us greater faith. Help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ even as we live in the midst of an ungodly and wicked world, may our hearts rise to you with faith and love and delight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.